Hey guys, you're listening to episode 40 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. In this episode, we're interviewing Dan Heitzhusen, the global church planning strategist at Finishing the Task. Welcome to the show. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Dan Heitzhusen, who has worked in faith ministry for 37 years for several organizations, including E3 Partners, The Barnabas Group, and most recently, Finishing the Task. Dan has traveled all around the world with a passion for reaching people with the gospel and shares many of his experiences with us. Dan's work with Finishing the Task serves to catalyze the global body of Christ towards the goal of ensuring that everybody everywhere has access to a Bible, believers, and a body of Christ. Stay tuned to hear more about this exciting work being done across the world. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask one big favor of you guys right now. If you've been listening to the show for some time and want to support what we're doing, one very easy and free way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just write whatever you like about the show and you'll help others find us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get started. All right. We're here with Dan Heitzhusen from Finishing the Task. Dan, we're excited to hear a little bit about your story and all the work that you guys are doing. Thanks so much for joining us. Boy, it's sure a privilege to be with you and Cody. Thanks, Keelan. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about yourself, your own story, and how you got to where you are today. Well, I start out as, you know, like a lot of us do as a young man, I was perhaps most notable. I was a crippled child from the time I was five until I was 10 years old. I was very entrepreneurial at that point. I had a paper out when I was five. I had a stock portfolio when I was 10. When I was 13, I wanted a horse. And my parents said, well, you got to buy your own horse. And so I started a lawn cutting company with five employees and bought my horse, bought my first motorcycle and bought a car. And when I turned 16, I was dating a girl. I was healed of my crippling disease, which, by the way, was just instrumental in a lot of things. It gave me perseverance. I was bullied a lot. It's kind of that ugly duckling. But I look now, and it has shaped me in a a lot of different ways. And, you know, eventually, I got to date a gal, and she told me she wanted to break up with me because of something she saw in the Bible. And I'm like, where in the Bible does they break up with Dan? (laughs) And she pointed to 1 Corinthians 13. She didn't feel like she loved me like that. And I read it like, well, I love you like this. And so she broke my heart. And we started going to a Bible study. I started going to a Bible study for two reasons. One was I grew up in a certain religion, and our particular church didn't really look at the Bible as an owner's manual of life. And so I was surprised. Why would someone make such an important decision based on the Bible? And then the second reason was she was there and I was hoping she would change her mind. (laughs) Well, at that Bible study, I was introduced to a love relationship with Jesus, just rocked my world. And I went from there. I was 16, went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And in my first year, a guy from Campus Crusade led the Bible study in the fraternity I pledged. And then I got discipled with Campus Crusade through college. And my sophomore year, I went to this conference called KC83, and I heard Billy Graham and 
I heard Bill Bright and I heard Josh McDowell and I wrote my Bible, a commitment to the Great Commission. That same year, I also got a job working for IBM, or I should say they paid me 19 bucks an hour to entertain clients on the golf course. And so that was my gig, which today is about $45 an hour to play golf and have dinner. And I got time and a half when golf went too long. And it was a really good gig if you can get it. And my dream was to buy and sell companies. And so I worked through college. I worked for IBM and I continued to work. And my professor was going to take me to a company called Deloitte Haskins and Sales to start the information technology business with them. And so that's where I was headed. And then I was in charge of bringing Josh McDowell on our campus. And Josh was a notable Christian author and speaker, and it was a big outreach. And I ended up going to an executive outreach where Josh was speaking because as a student, I got to be there. It was a lot of, it was really a nice bank building. The one person at my table owned his own company, his own insurance company, one owned his own bank. And so I was admiring the wealth in the room. And Josh began to share his testimony. And at a certain point, he had him laughing and cutting up. And then he got to significance in life. And you could have heard a pin drop. And 80% of those men and women trusted Christ that day, indicated decisions for Christ. And I was looking around in their eyes. And it was just for me, it was this picture that should I go into the business world and hopefully make lots of money and pursue material things, which is where I was going, Or could I go into a vocational ministry that would make a greater difference for people? And so I said, okay, Lord, you got me. I'm never going to have fun again. Never going to own anything nice. I'll never have a car. I'll never snow ski or do all that golf, all the sports I liked. I'll serve you, Jesus. And all I knew about was campus with Campus Crusade. And Josh McDowell heard about it and asked me if I'd come work with him. And so my story kind of started there, if you will, my vocational ministry story. And so I went home, told my parents that I was involved with Campus Crusade. I wasn't going to follow this business career that I'd been on going on. And from their perspective, I joined this cult and it was a faith missionary. Now I have to go, you know, hit people up for money. (laughs) (laughs) And so my parents knew three people that were the born again types, as they would describe it. And they introduced me to them. And I think it was within, yeah, three months, the Lord provided all my support from most people I didn't know, who, by the way, that was 37 years ago. Many of them are still with me 37 years later. And we have got just the most amazing partnership in the gospel and relationship. And I'm part of their family. They're part of my family. The bond and partnership of the gospel has just been phenomenal. That's how I got started. Then I went away for a three-month discipleship training course, and I said, God, why did you call me on this planet? What is my mission? I was 21, and I wrote down in my journal to unite the body of Christ to fulfill the Great Commission. And, you know, I didn't know much about the Great Commission. I just thought about lost people. I didn't know about tribes and tongues and nations in those days. So anything that unites people, I'm for. Anything that divides them, I'm against. And also they can come to know a love relationship with Jesus that will rock their world. And ultimately, hopefully, we'll see the Great Commission fulfilled. And so over time, I began to understand tribes and nations. When I worked with Josh, I was a personal assistant, traveled with him, 
We did 300 cities in 20 countries in my first five and a half years of ministry. I did a lot of work behind the Iron Curtain. I got to see persecuted peoples up close. A lot of cloak and dagger stuff where you're followed by the KGB. It was, you know, exciting times. I went from there to E3 Partners, which is a church planning organization, which stands for equipping God's people to evangelize his world and establish his church. Started with 25 staff, helped grow it to a little over 500 staff. I was vice president of field ministry. And the year that I passed the baton to go to FTT, we saw in that one year, first time ever, we saw over 100,000 churches started around the world. And in my 25 years with E3, I got to take short-term mission teams into places in the most remote places you can imagine, worked in over 100 countries, I got to go to villages. I've worked with Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Hamas terrorists. I've worked during the Iraq war. I worked with former headhunting tribes. I've gotten to see the power of God close up. Gotten to see the lame walk, the blind see. I've gotten to see God stop a hurricane in mid track so we could see people come to faith and churches getting planted. And so a lot of that was just personal, just going person to person house-to-house starting churches. And then over time, we began to understand how to start churches that multiplied. And so we weren't just starting, you know, maybe four or 5,000 churches a year. We began to see churches that were starting churches, started churches, started churches, seeing church planting movements. And it was pretty amazing. And then one of my mentors, Paul Eshelman, who started the Jesus Film with Campus Crusade, He said, Dan, would you consider working with me at finishing the task? And finishing the task was about getting the gospel to the last people groups on earth, the last tribes on earth. And so I prayed about it and been with finishing the task since 2018. And it's been another ride as well. Well, you've certainly fit a lot into the years that God's given to you. Before we go on, I wanted to take a second and if you could just define the Great Commission. We talk about the Great Commission all the time on the podcast, and I realize that we don't always stop and really define that for people who have maybe heard that term thrown around, but don't really have a clear picture of what that is. Yeah. So, you know, there's a number of ways to define it. The picture I kind of look at is when you look at Revelation 7, 9, where it talks about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship the King of Kings. And the Great Commission found in Matthew and Luke, and Acts, and Mark, and you can also find it in the Old Testament through the Abrahamic Covenant. And so you find this beautiful picture of basically, God said, go make disciples of all nations. And that word nations is ethne, which is not just nations as we understand it, but it's people groups, it's language, it's culture. And so as finishing the task has been focusing on the 12,000 or so ethno-linguistic people groups that are out there. And the idea is if we can get the gospel to those last people groups, where there's first believers, first churches in every people group, it at least sets the table of a part of the Great Commission to be fulfilled. And then others would say, you know, every person gets a chance to hear. Well, we'll see how that happens, but we're working really hard on making sure that Everyone has a chance to hear the gospel. Everyone has a chance to be discipled in a newly planted church. And everyone has a chance to have the word of God in their own language in some way. 
And that's really kind of our focus at finishing the task right now. It's not just the people groups, because we're closing in on that. But it's the next level. How do we get a church for every 1,000 people? How do we get continuous evangelism for every person on the planet? And how can we have the Word of God translated in either a written language or an oral language that people can understand? And by the way, or a deaf language so that everybody has the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Well, Dan, it's so impressive to see how God has inserted people into your life at different times and really guided you and had his hand over that entire process. And it's clear to see how you've had the Great Commission put on your heart from an early age, and it's really focused your efforts since then. I'd love if you could tell us a little more about how Finishing the Task was founded and what you do for the organization. Absolutely. So, you know, Billy Graham around 20 years ago asked Paul Eshelman to bring about seven or 800 missionaries together to focus on Ralph Winter's work on the unreached people groups of the world. So they came up with a list of people groups and they had this very anointed meeting and they said to all these missionaries, who will go after these people groups? And so they raised their hands and people went and said, yes, I'll take so-and-so, I'll take so-and-so. And then after a while, there was still a number of these people groups still left. And so one table in the back of the room said, and the table number was 71, said, we'll take all the rest. And so they got together, and it was Campus Crusade, it was Wycliffe Bible Translators, it was YWAM, it was the Southern Baptist. And so they came together and said, all right, we're going to do all we can to reach those people groups. And so they started Table 71, which also started the orality movement, a number of things. And from that point forward, those leaders met three times a year to focus on this. And out of those meetings, they started finishing the task. And so Paul Eshelman, there was another gentleman that helped found it. And then that gentleman passed away. And Paul Eshelman picked up the baton. Paul started the Jesus film. And Paul began to go all over the world with stacks of paper. So, you know, in the first 2000 years or so, I think it was the year 2000, they had this conference the worldwide body of Christ had reached about 9,000 of the ethno-linguistic people groups, leaving about 3,000 to go. Well, they got together, and so Paul Eshelman just began to take this list of 3,000 all over the world, working with the call to all and the rest of the body of Christ, and said, please care, please send someone. Did you know there's a people group over that mountain over there that's never heard the name of Jesus? There's no known believers. Would you just care and send some people to reach them? And so he did that for years, along with a whole team of people. And the worldwide body of Christ really jumped on it. And when I joined in the year, I think, 2018, there were still about, I think it was 1,800 people groups to go. And by God's grace, the Lord took my background with all the church planning organizations I work with. And then God raised up Doug Cobb to start the finishing fund. And a team of us began to work together to get church planning organizations to adopt and engage these people groups. And in just the last few years, we're down now to a little under 200 unengaged, unreached people groups. So think of this, 2,000 years approximately. You have 9,000 people groups. 
in about 1% of that time, the worldwide body of Christ has gotten to 3,000 or so. So the momentum right now in terms of the body of Christ reaching people groups is phenomenal just in the last four or five years. And so, you know, Paul, I like to say he killed a bunch of trees because he would just carry suitcase loads of lists. And people went and there were many martyred people for the sake of going after these people groups. And but God showed up and prevailed. And now we're getting toward the end of that list and moving toward, okay, great. There's two or three believers. There's 10 believers. There's a hundred believers. There's a thousand believers, but there's a people group of a hundred thousand people and there's three churches. Wonderful. Let's try to penetrate. So everyone in that hundred thousand people group or that million person people group get a chance to hear the gospel, be discipled in a church, get a chance to have the word of God in their own language. So that's kind of like 1.0, 2.0, 1.0 FTT is let's get it at least the first believers, the first churches started amongst these people groups. 2.0, let's get saturation so everyone has an opportunity around the world to know Jesus. Yeah, Dan, that is super fascinating. And for anyone who's listening, we did have Doug Cobb on the show back on episode 35, just a couple episodes ago, to tell us all about the Finishing Fund and about the work they're doing, partnering with you guys and really focusing on those final remaining people groups that have never been reached. You brought up focusing now more on saturation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and you know, what the global strategy is to actually accomplish that. That's a great question. So with Table 71, they've historically had managing partners for each of the initiatives that they put forth. And so in that same vein, we put together a team under, as Paul Eshelman passed the baton to Rick Warren, Rick came in and Rick likes to describe the Great Commission in the three Bs, bodies, believers, and Bibles, Bibles, believers, and bodies. Okay. And so you got believers, that would be evangelism. You got Bibles, well, that's Bible translation, Bible engagement. And you got bodies, which is church planting. And then we've got a fourth B called breakthrough prayer. We needed a fourth B, you know, but strategic prayer specifically focused on these strategies internationally. Well, for bodies, for church planting, Bakeli Shanko, Dr. Bakeli Shanko with Campus Crusade, and he's the president of GACX, Global Association for Church Multiplication. He's the managing partner for bodies with Believers, we have Josh Newell, who heads up the Jesus film, and he's focusing on mobilizing the body of Christ for continuous evangelism. And then for Bibles, we have John Chestnut, who heads up Wycliffe and the Illuminations group. That's a bunch of different Bible translation organizations focused on getting the word of God together. And one of the challenges in terms of Bible translation, often, according to John and others, is you have people that work for years and there's no church planting engagement going on. So you have a Bible that's printed, but you have nobody that wants it. And it's in a warehouse somewhere. Or on the flip side, we have these church planting movements with millions coming to Christ, literally, and no Bible for them. And then you, of course, have the problem with evangelism without discipleship or without church planting. So how do we connect those things, and then how do we have strategic prayer that connects those things together so it's more of a unified front moving down the world together 
than a bunch of individual parts. So one of the problems that finishing the task is trying to do is to unite the body of Christ in these key areas of Bibles, believers, and bodies and breakthrough prayer. I love the comprehensive focus, how it's not just completely going all in on just one aspect of it, because as we know, the faith journey involves all of those. You need every piece of that to develop and be discipled and grow spiritually. So I love the whole focus there. You've mentioned that you've done quite a bit of traveling and you've gone and experienced all kinds of incredible things. And I'm looking at the wall behind you. You have artifacts. I see a spear and all kinds of interesting pictures. And last time we talked, you mentioned a story that you had about hearing the gospel in Nepal. I'm sure you're just overflowing with stories. And I was hoping you could share a couple with us. Absolutely. Well, I think when I first started traveling around the world, it was so surprising to meet people who had never, ever heard the name of Jesus. You might go into a village of three or four or 500 people and you'd say, do you know Jesus through an interpreter? And they'd say, they'd talk to one another and say, well, no, but maybe he lives in the next village. They'd never heard the name once. And what was remarkable was when you begin to share the gospel story, the Holy Spirit would have shown up. And many times they'd have dreams and visions that you were coming. And like one time we had this one gal that was sharing and she got up to share and there were about 150 people and they asked her, where are you from? And she said, oh, I'm from San Diego, but I grew up in Chicago. Now, mind you, this is the middle of Northeast India and this is before internet and all these things. And she kept going and then she stopped and said, why did you want to know where I was from? And they said, we had a vision in the village. Somebody from Chicago was going to tell us about the one true God. And we wanted to know if we were listening to the right person. And by the way, the whole village came to faith in Christ through that woman's testimony. Well, it was such a privilege to be able to speak the name of Jesus for the first time in someone's hearing, to see the Holy Spirit show up, and to see people that many times they would know that they would be beaten, they would be kicked out of their villages, they would lose their jobs, they might even be killed if they accepted this gospel message. But the Holy Spirit had shown up in so much power, with so much like removing the blinders from their eyes so they could see and fully embrace the gospel, they were willing to trust Christ. I'll never forget this one woman, she was 98 years old, she said, why is it taking you so long if this is such good news to get it to our village? And then, you know, I think it's so hard. I mean, I live here in America and I've traveled to all these places and it's really easy to forget how the rest of the world lives and how remote the rest of the world are. And these tribes that are in these mountains that have no running water or no electricity or they're out, you know, in the boonies, as we'd call it back in Tennessee. And so it's just hard to get your grasp around what it's like to have no light of Christ, like zero believers. And so I was working with finishing the task. We had done an Issachar conference in Lexington, Kentucky, and a number of donors in Lexington, Kentucky got together with some churches, and we partnered together to reach 58 unengaged, unreached people groups in Nepal. And so I was able to take in a group of those donors, you know, three years into the project, and we were able to get to 48 of the 58 unengaged people groups. We got on airplanes, we got on 
you know, buses. We got on four wheel drives and we drove up these mountains in the middle of nowhere. You're like, why in the world do these people live here? Number one. And how did you ever find them? Number two. And then you meet these first believers. Well, one of the stories that emerged and one of the first believers we met was a girl named Anu, this 17 year old girl. And we met this woman named Esther and her husband, and they had been sent out as part of this project. They were funded with a church planting organization up to this remote village up high in the Himalayas. And it was a very closed village, and they began to prayer walk around this temple. And this one girl, Anu, walks out of the temple. Esther shares the gospel with her. Anu had headaches. As she trusted Christ, her headaches disappeared. Well, then Anu and Esther shared the gospel with Anu's brother. Anu's brother was paralyzed, and he trusted Christ, and God healed him of his paralyzation. Well, her mom and dad were the temple worship leaders in this remote temple, and they would play the drums in this temple, and they saw Anu's headaches, and they saw the healing in their brother, and they came to Christ. Well, as we learn more about this temple, and forgive me for sharing this, but in this temple, rich Hindus buy poor Hindus baby girls. And while Anu's parents would play the drums, they would, you know, slice their throats and pour their blood on the altar as human sacrifice still going on just, you know, three or four years ago. And for Anu, this was normal. This was generations. So if you can imagine a dark place where there's no light of Christ, where they're worshiping demons, what do you think the demons want them to do? That's how wicked this is. In so many places around the world where there's no light of Christ, you have so much human trafficking. There's no value for human life. There's no light of Christ. And so what's been exciting is that Anu just overflowed with joy as she shared her story. And she was back in Kathmandu. She was translating the scriptures for her people. And they had started a church in that temple with her parents and their family. And that, you know, of course, the temple's persecuting them, trying to kick them out. But this is their only place they've ever lived. Generations of their family have been temple worshipers or worship leaders playing these drums. And that's their property that they live on. And so they've been under persecution. But as a result of the light of Christ, There's been a new church started there. There's been five or six churches started amongst the Dharmia people group. And it's just been exciting to see the transformation. Anu's brother is one of the key church planters now. And God is just doing remarkable work amongst this tribe as the light of Christ has penetrated this temple. And they no longer do the human sacrifice in this temple as the light of Christ has at least brought light into this dark area. And so it's hard, I think, for any of us to believe or to understand what it's like living in America or living in any place where you have a number of churches on how dark, dark is, how evil, evil is, how horrible Satan is and the kinds of lies that he does, the poverty that he drives people into. And when the light of Christ comes into villages, it comes into an individual, it comes into a family, it comes into a village, you see alcoholism go away. You see the value of life start. You see transformation in families and in villages. And the light of Christ is so bright. And for me, it's like going into a dark room and you get to light that 
first candle. And it makes such a difference. And so to be able and be in these places, and by the way, to be able to serve Christians that work in persecuted lands where they could be killed, their families could be killed, and they value the gospel so much, they're willing to put all of it on the line to be able to serve Jesus, to share the gospel with people that have never heard. Esther and her husband risked their lives to go to that people group up in the Himalayas. And God came through and did great work there. Dan, I'm really curious. These are incredible stories that it's really hard to wrap my head around having my very limited perspective and not having traveled much. And I just can't help but wonder, if you're going out there, what are you saying when you share the gospel? What does that actually look like when you're having that conversation that has this radical transformation? I'm just sitting here wondering, what would I say in that situation? <laughs> well, you know, you got to start is this, this story, you start with creation, you know, and God created the world. And then you talk about the beauty of creation, the beauty of the garden. You talk about the fall that took place, about the penalty for sin, about God loving the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus. You talk about what Jesus did on earth. He lived and he did miracles and he loved people. And then you talk about the crucifixion, that he died for their sins, for our sins, And then you talk about the hope of the gospel and the free gift of that gospel. And, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of a strange story. I mean, we've heard it all our lives if you've been in America, but it's really kind of an odd story. You know, God of the world creates the world, sin enters in, you know, he's got to sacrifice his own son for the sake of mankind to appease. But what you find is the Holy Spirit shows up in powerful ways, and again, removes the blinders from their eyes. So when I first started sharing the gospel, I started, you know, in Daytona Beach during Beach Week and sharing the gospel with beachgoers. And then, you know, I was scared to death and went into this one party one time, and they're drinking and they're screaming, hanging off the balconies. And within 30 minutes, the head guy turned off the music, and he said, there's someone here that wants to tell you this story. So I shared my testimony, and a number of people came to Christ in that party there in Daytona Beach during spring break. And I was scared to death. And then I started working with Muslims in Israel, and I didn't know anything but the the cliff notes of Islam, and I'm scared to death. How am I going to share it? But it's the power of the gospel unto salvation. It's the power of God that comes through. It's not you. The Holy Spirit is there. He's going to really be powerful. And so I saw Hamas terrorists come to Christ in Israel through the gospel testimony. And then I started working with Buddhists in Myanmar and different places and saw the lame walk, the blind see, the power of God, whole villages transformed by the gospel. You know, how do you deal with Hindus? And so it's the same thing. It's the power of God unto salvation. What do you do with tribals? It's the same thing. God shows up in a remarkable way and you do the best you can to share the gospel whether it's you through a translator, whether it's the nationals, which is even better because they have the same near culture, same language, but it's the power of God and the salvation. And by the way, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Do not fear for what you will say, for God will give you the words. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in interrogation situations, how many times I've been in places where they might kill you. And that verse hanging on that and praying for wisdom The Holy Spirit truly does show up. And by the way, guess what? As God gives you words to say, and you don't even know where they came from, you know, for me, I get the shivers. I'm like, wow, the supernatural God of the universe 
just spoke through me the revelation that God is all powerful and he actually will speak through you is so overwhelming to think that the God of universe would even use someone like me or any of us. It's just remarkable. It's such a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that the fate of all of creation doesn't hinge on our abilities (laughs) and that (laughs) he gave us the Holy spirit to really carry the heavy lifting. He just asks us to put our yes on the table. So, yeah, amazing. You mentioned early on about your desire to see the church brought together in unity. And I know that you've been able to be a part of that and to see a lot of that through finishing the task. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you have seen the church, other organizations collaborate and come together towards the greater task of the Great Commission and how you have seen God work through that. Yes, There is a phenomenal movement of God and unity around the world right now. And in light of John 17, you know, when Jesus priestly prayer, he prayed for us that we'd be united and that the world would know. And that's coming true today in just a phenomenal way. And so finishing the task is just one of many ministries out there that has a goal to see the Great Commission fulfilled. They have a goal by 2033. Lausanne is out there. And so with our four B's, by the way, There's a huge prayer network, not just FTT, but networks of networks of prayer that are focusing on this. Through the Believers Bee, the Evangelism Bee, you have the Go Movement. And all around the world, they have a goal this year, just the Go Movement, to mobilize 100 million believers to reach 1 billion people with the gospel in 2022. You have these church planting movement networks that since 1995, there may be two known church planting movements in the world. And now there's several thousand movements. And just in the last five or six years, the vast majority of the 4.1 million churches been planted through those movements have risen up. And there's a little over 79 million new believers, probably 90% in the last 10 years that have come to Christ. So there's this huge flow of God's spirit Moving across the planet, you have the Lausanne Conference, you have GACX, you have, gosh, I could name a hundred organizations, and there's just this sense that people are coming. And, you know, recently I was on a church planning call with the Lausanne Church Planning Initiative, and we all had the same goals. We're all trying to say, how do we do this together? How do we unite the body of Christ? And so it's a huge momentum of unity of people coming to Christ, of churches being planted. And I think uh, COVID has really opened a lot of doors for the gospel, where some, at least in our work, where the unengaged, unreached people groups, we couldn't find them or they were too persecuted. And as believers changed from just using money for, say, church planting, they started serving these different people, bringing them food, bringing them resources, bringing them masks, that has opened doors that were shut because nobody was doing that. The government wasn't helping in these places. Only, you know, the churches were standing up. The believers were standing up. And so I really think the worldwide pandemic is causing people to be more hungry. There's been incredible trends toward doing things online. So things I used to have to fly around the world to do, now we do through Zoom. By the way, let's say I go work in a closed country or a number is go work in a closed country and you're you're traveling to a closed village, people see you and it puts more people at risk. 
So you can zoom into that place, if you will, do your training online without putting nationals at risk. And so the worldwide IQ for digital things has really gone up significantly since the pandemic's happened. So a lot of incredible momentum is happening right now in the body of Christ. And it really is around unity, around Jesus. People are about Jesus first, not their logos, not their organizations. They're about really trying to see Jesus made known. And it's very refreshing. I know you've heard about the Illuminations movement before with the goal of bringing the word, the gospel, translated into every language by 2033. You mentioned the Go movement as well. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, there are a couple of Europeans that came together to start the Go movement. They have the Go month of, for the month of May, which is an evangelism month worldwide that focused on evangelism. There's a Go decade. Again, they're training millions of believers to share their faith, specifically through the month of May. But recently, in our partnership together with WEA, the and Go movement, we started a church planting initiative day. So the last Sunday of the month of May is a focus on church planting. So you have evangelism, discipleship, and church planting together. And so it's remarkable all the organizations that are involved in these movements and the things that are happening. And Go Movement's just one of several, but they're marshalling millions of people to share the gospel, and they're training them to share the gospel. And now we're going to add church planting discipleship tools to that picture, and I think it's going to be a wonderful marriage. And by the way, Illuminations is represented in FTT, if you will, to a degree. Each of our three Bs, four Bs have teams of people. So, for instance, in the Bodies B, which is where I spend my time working with Bekele Shanko, we have one group, a leader, that has a group of workers, you know, around the idea of mobilizing young people. So we have a a gentleman out of Egypt that has 40 million believers on social media. And they're focused on mobilizing the young people and reaching children and reaching young people. We have another leader that's focused on mobilizing the five church planting movement networks and others around the globe. We have another leader and there's a whole team there. We have another leader on that group called for digital strategies for digital church online. How do we plant churches online and disciple people online? We have another one for mobilizing the 43,000 denominations out there. And so there's a denominational leader that's focused on how do we mobilize the body of Christ toward these goals of a church for every 1,000 people and the other goals relative to Bibles and believers. And so each of those groups the Bibles, the believers, they have subgroups that are part of that, that are representing many organizations, many networks of networks. So FTT is kind of a network of networks, and Illuminations is already well on their way, and we're trying to be fuel, if you will, for their fire to accomplish those goals. So any way we can help them, we're all in. And so they had this goal, they're part of it. We're joining in that. But Kelly Shanko with GACX had the goal for a church for every 1,000, made a perfect leader because, it, you know, the goals align. And so we're hoping that together we can mobilize the body of Christ. And, you know, with Rick Warren, he is 
probably the most well-known evangelical speaker, at least by a number of people, surpassing Billy Graham several years ago, because of The Purpose Driven Life, the book that's been translated in all these languages around the world, millions of copies, and then because of the peace plan that's in every country of the world. And so he has trained all these pastors all over the world to share the gospel, to plant churches, to have healthy churches. And so I'm hoping and we're hoping that God might use Rick and the platform that he's given him with Saddleback Church and all the work that he's been doing, that God might use Rick as a way to unite some of the parachurch ministries and the church, because often the church and the parachurch ministries aren't connected well, and they kind of see each other in competition as opposed to working together. And so we're hoping that Rick will be a part of uniting that divide. We're also seeing phenomenal movements around the world. A number of things have happened through that. So you have traditional churches that aren't connecting with movements and pioneer church planting. By the way, if I've ever been turned into authorities or some of the nationals, often it's by the denominations. It's not by the radical Hindus. It's by traditional things. So how do we unite that part of the body of Christ to fulfill the Great Commission? So we're working together, you know, greater together than apart. Dan, I'm wondering, you've thrown out a couple dates that I've now heard maybe half a dozen times that are really shocking, to be honest, when you first hear them, you know, how long does it take to have a Bible in every language? How long does it take to meet these church planting saturation targets? And how long does it take to reach, you know, every last people group? And it's a lot sooner than I ever would have imagined if you asked me a couple of years ago. But I am wondering, how do you come up with those estimates? What do you assume and what goes into those targets? And then what would cause that to accelerate or be delayed? A great question, Cody. The date 2033 would be, by many estimates, the 2000th anniversary of the Great Commission. You know, Jesus grew to be 33 and gave us a Great Commission at 33. So 2033, give or take some months or, you know, is just an arbitrary time. And so what we're finding is a number of organizations have looked at that goal out in the future and said 2033, and as did FTT. And as we look at these God-sized goals, because these are massive goals, they're faith goals, they're goals that no one organization could ever accomplish on their own. They're way beyond anything that we could ever imagine. But we serve an amazing God who does supernatural things. And if you just look at church planning movements, if those things keep spreading, that could reach the saturation goal just by moving you know, these different movements around the world, just moving the different coals, call it the hot coal strategy, one movement sending workers into different fields. These evangelism goals, the technology today relative to the internet, relative to all kinds of just different social platforms, gives an ability to reach everyone in the world. I've worked in the middle of nowhere where you'd see a guy that's totally naked, he's got a string on, and hanging from the string is a, a cell phone. There's more cell phones now on the planet than there are people. And you're like, use the solar power. So we can reach people through technology in a phenomenal way. The Bible translation that used to take 40 years now is, you know, can get done in a year or two through very much the same kinds of ways that you have technology where you have Wikipedia and you come together and a whole bunch of people come together through technology to create Wikipedia or these various strategies around the world. So we live in a day right now where things are just speeding up 
quickly. Technology is fast. And the body of Christ is embracing technology and saying, how can we use it for the kingdom? And so I wouldn't say that these goals, you know, Rick didn't go in his quiet time and come up with, you know, the Holy Spirit hit him over the head with a lightning rod and said, 2033. It just appeared to us, like in Acts, you'll see certain specific times where the Holy Spirit does speak clearly. And other times you'll see in Acts where it says, well, it appeared to us and the Holy Spirit to set these goals. And so there seems to be a unity around 2033 because of the 2000 year of the Great Commission. And we're shooting for that and doing all we know to go after those goals with as much faith and which is much trust, much collaboration as possible with the body of Christ. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And there's a bunch of different pieces that all have to kind of come together to really reach those goals. And you mentioned all of them. And, you know, we had Doug Cobb sharing how most of the unreached people groups, there's a plan for most of those within the next year or two to have somebody engaging every single people group on the planet, which blew our minds when we heard that. And then I know that there's some very targeted strategies for the translation side of things and getting the Bible translated into every single language. And I'm wondering, just from your big picture perspective, what you're able to see with all these moving parts, what do you think are the biggest barriers that we face as the church, whether it's 2033 or whenever it is, what are the biggest barriers we have ahead of us? And what are the biggest question marks that are out there as far as we don't quite know how it will be done, but we know that it has to be done somehow? Yeah, one of the biggest barriers right now is knowing where the church is and where the church isn't. There's a barrier to sharing information because in a lot of these closed countries where if the information gets in the wrong hands, people are killed. And so how do we as a body of Christ measure and evaluate whether or not we've gotten to every village? We've connected with a church for every 1,000 people. How do we measure tangibly whether we're getting to every person with a continuous stream of the gospel? You know, these measurements are difficult. In the translation world, different translation organizations have different goals for translation. So they picked a number out there and they've set that goal, but none of the translation organizations all agree on the exact number of the exact people groups, right? The exact language that's there. Deaf Bibles is another one. How do we reach the deaf, about 1% or 2% of the world's population that are deaf? These are pretty big, significant challenges. Uh, we, By the way, at FTT, we started a deaf coalition for focusing on planting churches amongst the deaf and trying to marshal the deaf and give them a voice, if you will, in the worldwide body of Christ. By the way, when I was in Nepal, I got to go to worship with the first deaf church that was planted in Nepal through that project. And I'd never been in a deaf church, and I'd never spent that much time in And just worshiping with the deaf people was just such phenomenal and a joy on their faces and their heart to be able to reach other deaf people who, for the most part, are very disenfranchised in many cultures of the world. I think those are some of the barriers. I think still uniting the body of Christ, there's debates on who is and who is not a believer. Those are challenging debates. You know, are the Orthodox and Catholics believers? Are they not? Is it just the evangelicals? Is it just the people that speak in tongues? Is it what, you know, 
There's some pretty good debates out there. I will tell you personally, I've met lots of born-again Catholics and lots of born-again Orthodox, and there's huge movements of born-again people amongst those peoples. But even saying that, we'll get a lot of pushback that there's people, you know, depending upon what stripe and what's your belief and what your theological worldview is, there's people that will, you know, picket you for that, that are part of the body of Christ, and you have to love them like everybody else. Those are some of the challenges that are out there, I think, that, that still we face, and you just keep pushing forward. But again, there's this movement of unity that's phenomenal. There's just this sense of Jesus. If Can we agree on the gospel? Can we agree that people need the Lord? Can we agree that the people that don't call themselves Christian, can we all agree to go after those people to share the gospel with them? And so let's quit fighting amongst each other and splitting hairs on theological things. And let's go after the things that we know for sure that God called us to do. And let's let's not spend a lot of time fighting on the things that we're not sure of. So, Dan, on the Finish Line podcast, we really started talking about personal financial strategies and generosity. And obviously, that's a huge input in all of the work that finishing the task and, and really all these organizations need to its fuel, like you said, to power this activity. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what generosity and mobilizing dollars can really do for these initiatives. Cody, so you mentioned that you had Doug Cobb on the podcast before with the Finishing Fund. And so Doug started the Finishing Fund in 2018. And it was amazing to me to be able to go to my church planting friends and say, hey, if you'll adopt this Unengaged Unreached People group, if you'll go after them, there's a ministry out there called the Finishing Fund that will entertain proposals to help you advance the ball. Now, being a leader of a ministry at E3 Partners, I could raise my hand and say, yeah, I'll adopt 20 people groups. Then I got to turn around and go raise the half million dollars to do that. And not only that, I got to build a strategy to do that. I've got to go work with the ground workers. And by the way, as a vice president, I have to convince my staff that they should do that because, you know, you're in kind of a volunteer organization And so I've got to do all the change dynamics, work with my continent directors to work with my country directors to target that people group. And then I've got to go, you know, raise the prayer resources and the funding. That's a lot. But if someone's out there and they say, hey, I've got this fund, I'll help you do this. That's actually a little bit of a carrot. So I can say to my staff, hey, I know you're trying to reach all of these villages all over this part of India. If you'll just target these unengaged, unreached people groups, there's a group out there that will fund you and you can reach all those other villages as well. And so that funding was amazing catalyst, phenomenal catalyst, just a little bit of what would we entrepreneurs would call it startup capital, if you will, to get things going. It makes such a huge difference in the kingdom. And with finishing the task, one of the things that Rick Warren really wants to do is he would like to raise, you know, first it started with a billion dollars, but he'd like to see at least a couple of billion dollars raised to advance this strategy. And you come along, and so, for instance, a number of people don't like to give funding to infrastructure. But in business, if I were to say to you, hey, if we doubled your overhead from 10% to 20%, and you could quadruple your profits, you'd jump all over that deal. If we bought you a new computer system and that helped you do X, it would leverage you to 100X. 
there's a number of things that startup capital, that capital infused in the right places can just blow things up. And so we're hoping to raise several billion dollars for the kingdom through FTT and other resources for these 4B initiatives. We'll end up giving that away to a lot of different other ministries because it's not about going through FTT at all. It's about advancing the kingdom. And one of the things I'm excited about, too, Doug Cobb with the Finishing Fund is starting, looks like another fund, you know, Finishing Fund 2.0 to support church planning movements around the world, which is just exploding. And so church planning movements, just a little bit of capital will go a long way. And so funding is important. But I think, let me just go back. I've been in faith ministry for 37 years, and I've walked with people I didn't know before I raised support. We have partnered together, and together we have seen the supernatural hand of God operating. And a number of them have gone with me around the world to experience the power of God firsthand. And some would say that their partnership with me, some have said, and with others, have enriched their lives and have caused them to love Jesus and love God more than anything they've ever been a part of. And so I really believe this Great Commission vision that God gave us to use our time, our talent, our resources, our network to advance the kingdom. And, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And as you begin to give your treasure away, God tends to multiply in phenomenal ways. And not just in terms of ministry, but in terms of buckets of joy, the joy of the Lord that comes from investing in the kingdom in all those ways, not just financial, but in network and and leveraging your platform and sharing the gospel yourself. All those things are just bring you joy. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And one of the things that I find so interesting about this podcast, as you were talking, it was funny to hear Finishing the Task, the Finishing Fund, and the Finish Line podcast all in the same (laughs) sentence. There's a lot of finishing going on. but I think the Holy Spirit's up to something there. (laughs) Yep, yep. Something to finish. You know, like Cody said, we started this podcast focused on generosity and the freedom and joy that comes through really stepping into generosity in faith and allowing God to just turn your life upside down through that. And we have heard countless stories now about that. And we named it the finish line podcast about the idea of a financial finish line, really, you know, setting a cap for your spending and saying, this is enough for me and my family so that I can use everything else for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom. But as we have just continued to hear story after story, like the stories that you have told today, our eyes have been opened to the greater picture of what God is doing in really seeing God completing the Great Commission through the church and through countless people who have, you know, given their entire lives to that focused goal, just like everything you've shared today. And that has opened, I know, Cody's and my eyes so much and, and for many of our listeners as well. And so when I think of the Finish Line podcast now, I really think of really the greater finish line of seeing God's kingdom on earth, uh, seeing the completion of the Great Commission. And so we've had many people here from organizations like Finishing the Task sharing the work that's being done right beside 
you know, episodes of people who are stepping into incredible generosity and who have had incredible business careers where God has blessed them and given them resources to manage. And seeing the marriage of those two, I think, is what makes me so excited and privileged that we get to be a part of all these conversations, you know, seeing these two sides, God raising up the resources for himself through his spirit and God completing the work that he tasked us to do. And so, you know, that's one of the things that gets me most excited about the podcast and about hearing this bigger picture perspective that people like you are able to share of just seeing God work through all that. So as we're getting to the end of the episode here, I did want to give us a chance to get to our manager's minute. You know, we spend all this time talking about trying to manage God's wealth wisely. And at the end of every episode, we like to give our listeners one practical action that they can take to do just that. So before we finish up, Dan, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel and build God's kingdom? You know, again, I've been in faith-based ministry for 37 years, and I've got a chance to have gospel patrons, people that have gotten behind me, that have encouraged me, that if we didn't have this partnership, I wouldn't be in the race today. And I've gotten to see close up people that give. And I've seen like one partner who had significant wealth and lived in a little bitty home in a very discreet place and gave a ton away. And everywhere you went, you ran into their giving. And you'd go to their house and they have 40-year-old furniture. And I've gotten to know people that God has blessed them with much and they have nice homes and nice things and they give away much and they use their influence. I would also say that wealth is not, if you've built a business over time, you have time, you have talent, you have infrastructure. So the people that partnered with me when I was opening up an office on the West Coast. They gave me their computer consultants to help me figure out how to build out the software and the computers I needed. They gave me ideas on phone systems, on strategic planning, on all kinds of other tangible ways that God has used their life and their business. They connected me to other people of wealth or people of understanding or people that would bring even in-kind gifts to the table, not just wealth. And, you know, just one story from one of my partners who was a developer, he said, Dan, I could give this $10 million today to the kingdom, or I could invest the $10 million and in five years have $50 million to give to the kingdom. And all my money is God's money. And so my giving is spirit led. It's I'm asking God what to do with all of it. I mean, what do you do with that question? Do you give the 10 million now or do you do the 50 million later or do you do five or how do you know? Well, you seek God in prayer. You connect with the Holy Spirit on that. And that's how he knows. And so it wasn't a formula. I'm going to give this amount. It was really talking with God and being intimate with God, with his giving and with the way that he worked. The other thing that I would say is that besides spirit-filled giving, really focusing on that, I'd say also be sure if you have a foundation or you're giving to a foundation, be sure to use that money. Get it out there working. There's a lot of money tied up in foundations that aren't out working now. There's an urgency about the gospel. And so if you've got these different foundations, I use the National Christian Foundation personally for our giving. But if you're working with that, 
get the money flowing, get them to strategic ministries. And then I just got to make a pitch, you know, less than 1% of every Christian dollar goes to missions. And of that 1%, about 1% goes to the unreached. And so I work with a number of folks and I was president of the Barnabas group in San Diego. And what I noticed is most people's giving was focused a lot on local things that they could tangibly take care of. And it was almost a voice crying in the wilderness for people to get excited about missionary things, about things that are going on around the world. Well, that's on God's heart. You know, God wants to see the Great Commission fulfilled. And so I would just appeal to your audience as someone that is working in these villages where they've never heard the name of Jesus, as a voice calling out in the wilderness is saying, please give toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Make that number change. Make those percentages change where the unreached peoples are where they've never heard the name, there's no access to the gospel. Give to that kind of thing. At least if currently you're not giving much to that portfolio, give more, a higher percentage to that portfolio. And then just the last thing I would say in terms of that privilege of giving to the unreached, a friend of mine, Dr. Sumner Wimp, he ruined with the man who started the Ryrie Study Bible. And Dr. Sumner Wimp was this gospel-loving guy you couldn't walk into a restaurant without him giving everyone a tract and sharing the gospel with every single person in the restaurant. He discipled me for a while. And literally, he had a tract rack on his meeting pocket for all his tracts. He gave them to everybody in the restaurant. And Sumner said this about life. He said that tragedy life isn't so much what happens to someone, but what they miss out on. And it talks about that God prepared works beforehand for us to walk in. And I think of those forks in the road where, for myself, where I take the godly fork or I take the selfish fork. And even the word of God says the desire to desire God comes from him. So I can't even take credit for the godly fork. But I think about the times where I haven't gone down that fork in the road. But when I have chosen the fork in the road that's the godly fork, there is so much joy in that, so much privilege of that. That is the good works that God prepared for me to walk in. And every one of us are unique. And God has created us uniquely to bless the Lord, to bring glory to his name throughout the world, and to give uniquely. And I just think, don't miss out of the privilege of being a part of what God is doing around the world right now. And honestly, there's so much momentum, so many great things going on. We want to Find out where God's at work and join him in it. And there's lots of places to join him in that work. Well, Dan, I love the way you put that. I couldn't agree more that this is what generosity invites you into what God wants for you. And I would second everything that you're saying here. Thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing not only your story, but your perspective. I'm just so excited and it's inspired to hear about the work that you and finishing the task are carrying out and really the unification, all of these things coming together. It's just such an encouraging and exciting message to hear. And I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Cody Keelan. I love your finish line podcast. Love what you're about. Thank you so much for the contribution you're making for the kingdom of Christ. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting up Financial Finish Line, the Finish Line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? 
If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you could connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 40. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>